A historic cemetery in Connecticut, Riverside Cemetery has a beautiful rural landscape style and design that was introduced in the 1830s. It has winding tree-lined paths, grassy slopes, ponds, and ornamental plantings. Riverside has an amazing array of funerary monuments in the Gothic, neoclassical, and romantic styles, and a modern Gothic memorial chapel that is just perfect. The property also includes many older burials and headstones dating back to the late 1700s, which were relocated from the Grand Street burial ground. This is just the kind of cemetery that feels like a beautiful outdoor museum. And we are just lucky enough to have a friend and fellow Tapophile here with us today to share some of its history, beauty, and its stories. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. co-host is Martin Begnell. He is from Waterbury, Connecticut. He's the president of the Friends of Riverside Cemetery and member of the cemetery board and is overseeing the preservation efforts there. His family has ties to the cemetery dating back to its founding and Martin gives historical tours at Riverside. Hi Martin, welcome. Hello, hi Lachelle. I'm so happy and grateful to have you on the podcast today. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to hear all about Riverside Cemetery. Sounds amazing. Well, okay, and, and it is, and I, and I hope I can convey that through, through words. I do give lectures and tours, and I always say that the, the best way to experience Riverside is obviously uh, when you're there, and you can, you can appreciate the landscape and the monuments, but I will do my best to, to try and paint pictures for your listeners. Perfect. Thank you so much. First, tell me just a little bit about yourself. Well, I uh, am the assistant managing editor at the Republican American newspaper. So I am doing journalism in my hometown, which is a great place uh, to do that kind of work. I'm familiar with the people and the places and the, and the history, both on a, on a personal level and a professional level as well. So, so that's a good place for me to be. And, and coincidentally, the, the newspaper is about... Uh, less than a mile from the cemetery so it affords me the time <laughs> in the afternoons often to go over there and, and take a daily walk and, uh, and and find new new bits of history and uh, on the monuments just something I would do so I've heard one of the first things that you say while giving tours at Riverside is that cemeteries were built for us tell us what you mean by that Going back to its founding, uh, Riverside Cemetery and, and other rural cemetery movement cemeteries from the, the mid-19th century, the founders and builders were creating a place much different from the, the previous uh, burial grounds and, and graveyards, you know, the churchyards, the town cemeteries. Right. They actually wanted a place where people could go to get away from the growing, crowding, dirty cities that, that were emerging at that time and a place to kind of escape into nature. They were also building a place 
of a lasting memory to themselves, really. These magnificent monuments they built in the sanctuary was creating the, this, this history of the place and of themselves. And they wanted people to know that you know, for, for generations. And, and, and lucky they did, because we can. Riverside Cemetery, I often say, is a, um, is a museum of art and history set in a beautifully landscaped park. And that's really what it is. Yes. So the intention from, from its very founding and today was inviting people into its gates to explore, to find history, to find peace and refuge. And that's what Riverside Cemetery is. The pictures that you sent are so amazing. Everything I've seen on social media, it looks so inviting and beautiful. I can't wait to come visit sometime. So tell me more. I'm so excited to hear about the cemetery. I often start my tours with this story, so maybe this is the best place to start. My great-great-grandfather, Michael Begnell, was a groundskeeper for a wealthy family in Ireland. Um, this is in the late 1840s. So, you know, he did their, their hedges and their, and their roses and their garden. Mm. But apparently he fell in love with Catherine, who was the 15-year-old daughter of the house. Now, Catherine's father wasn't too keen on this, and not because of age. Michael himself was but a teenager, but because of class. Okay. Catherine was the rich girl of the house, and, and, and Michael was the hired help. Gotcha. But uh, they must have been very much in love, because in 1850, they ran away and eloped and uh, came to America. Aww. And they settled in Connecticut, in, in, a, in a town uh, south of Waterbury called Bridgeport, where they started a family. Now, at that exact same time, uh, in 1850, the, uh, the leaders of Waterbury, these are the industrialists, the bankers, the political leaders, they had decided that Waterbury needed a new uh, burial ground. Mm -hmm. You know, as I mentioned earlier, Waterbury was kind of at the center of the Industrial Revolution, right? Mm -hmm. Since about 1802, Waterbury had begun uh, in the manufacture of brass buttons. And by 1850, it really was a growing industrial center. And I always point out on my tours that, you know, some of these industrialists, the Industrial Revolution happened as much in Waterbury as anywhere in America. It, it really was part of that very radical change in, in, in our society and culture. So because of that, the center of town was growing. Uh, there, were, there were people coming to work in these new factories. And the old town cemetery, right there in the center of town, you know, right off the green, like, like they often are in New England, mm -hmm. um, the old churchyards kinds of things, you know, it had been there for, you know, uh, already 150 years itself. But these were, these were haphazard. They were uncared for, they were untended, um, they were kind of becoming dilapidated, right? So that was a problem. And they also saw that there was this new kind of idea that, that maybe it wasn't very sanitary. Okay. To have riding corpses, in, in, right, where the people are living and working was something they thought maybe wasn't, wasn't ideal. And, and a very practical reason, the land was now very valuable, right? This, this was the center of town. So they decided they wanted to build a new cemetery away from the center, Riverside wasn't the first. Riverside is part of this whole rural cemetery movement. Um, so, yeah. so they find a, a piece of land uh, just across the, the river. This is the Naugatuck River. Um, at that time, there was nothing over there. It was, it was completely wooded. And they hire an, an engineer to survey the land. They then go about forming the Riverside Cemetery Association, uh, which in turn hires uh, landscape architect Howard Daniels. So Howard Daniels uh, lays out the cemetery in a garden cemetery style with, a, as I said, winding paths and, and there's ponds, ornamental trees, and the plots are built right into the landscape. So this is, you know, not like the old way where it was kind of thrown everywhere or, or what we used to now, everything right. in straight rows. Everything is kind of built in, curved on, on hillsides, you know, this, this kind of, as, as we say, this inviting new idea to how we, how we take care of our, of our dead. 
And Howard Daniels, in turn, hires a, a, a landscape firm out of Bridgeport, Connecticut. And on that crew was a young Irish immigrant named Michael Begnell, who in 1853, when, when Riverside Cemetery is dedicated, uh, Michael Begnell becomes the first resident custodian, a job he held for 50 years. Aww. So in essence, my, my grandfather built Riverside Cemetery. Oh, I love it. It wasn't with his money, you know, that, that came from the, mm-hmm. from, the, from the capitalist and the industrialist. But it was with his labor yeah. um, and the labor of his of his crew, and I imagine they had quite a crew, um, you know, the, to build these big monuments there, there, and to place them. Uh, there wasn't the machines we have today. Of course, they use everything with horses and pulleys and yeah. and labor and muscle. My family goes back to the very beginning of Riverside, and uh, you know, in fact, that the, the the cemetery association built for Michael a, a cottage directly across the front gate of of, of the cemetery. And uh, he and Catherine uh, lived there their whole lives and actually raised 10 children Aww, in that little cottage. I love it. I love their story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's romantic. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's exciting. I can't imagine, you know, who said it first, but, you know, Catherine, take my hand, or maybe she said it to him, let's go to America. Yeah. But they, they ran away, got on a boat, and came here. You know, there was kind of a, a, an immigration of, of Irish people to America, the first real, you know. Right. Uh, immigration, right? So at that time, 1850 was right then, you know. Um, so, so they, they maybe they weren't alone, but they ended up uh, in Waterbury, and and Michael, you know, did very well for himself. He ended up on the board of aldermen in the city. Um, there, there was a school named after him, in, in a section of town right where the cemetery is, Begnell School it was oh. it was torn down some years ago. But uh, yeah, so he he was he must have been quite the character, I imagine, to, 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 to do all that and accomplish all that and and, uh, and and build that beautiful place. Oh, that's great. So walk us through some of the prominent monuments or people that are buried there that have some interesting stories. Sure. One of the most known people to, to, to residents of Waterbury is, is a woman called uh, by the name of Carrie Welton. Mm-hmm. And we and we know her because on, on the city green, right in the center of town, and, and you know this is you know a, a, a good sized city. Waterbury is a hundred thousand, hundred and I guess fifteen thousand people uh, thereabouts today. On the green is this beautiful bronze sculpture of a horse, and and, and mm-hmm. it sits atop this large granite pedestal, and it's a drinking fountain for horses. Oh, that horse is the horse to represent Knight, who was Kerry Welton's favorite horse. Carrie Welton lived in, in one of the most beautiful houses in town. Her father was an industrialist, uh, the president of the American Pin Shop. Uh, you know, they, they made a fortune selling uh, pins, and they figured out a way to, to package them uh, that, that was unique. And, and, and anyway, they, they had lots of money. And Carrie was a, a young and kind of brash and, and headstrong uh, young woman. She would ride her, her horse, Knight through the streets of, of Waterbury, uh, through uh, day and night, all kinds of weather, uh, year round, you know, through fields and through creeks and through people's farms and everything, right? She was, she, she was kind of wild, but she loved her horse. She kept her horse in a barn with a black velvet drapery. Oh. She, she fed night with a porcelain bowl with, it, with its name, you know, hand painted on this bowl kind of thing. But the story was that uh, one of her horses, now it might have been night, but I, I guess that's never really been settled, kicked her father in the chest, oh. killing him. So the father had a, a strange bit in his, in his will where he left the house to the mother and the property, including the barn, you know, and all that, uh, to, to carry. And uh, we're not sure if that was the source of their friction, 
But uh, at some point, uh, Carrie and her mother had a falling out. Uh, and Carrie goes west, ends up in Colorado. She's now in her maybe maybe 30s by now. She's uh, uh, living with a woman, which was probably ahead of her time as well. She also begins uh, climbing all the 14ers. This is the mountains in Colorado higher than 14,000 feet. Yeah. And again, that would be unheard of for a woman in the, yeah. you know, 1880, right? right? Like she said, she had a sense of adventure. She attempts, I guess it's Pikes Peak, um, and uh, in spite of a, of a storm, uh, she's able to complete that climb. And the following September, I think this is 1882 or so, she's attempting Long's Peak. She has a guide with her. They set out, there's, there's heavy snow on the mountain from the previous spring. They had a bad winter. Um, so they leave their horses far below the place on the mountain where they would normally take their horses. Um, they begin the trek up the mountain. And at some point, the, 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 the day turns uh, gray and dark. Uh, the guide suggests to Carrie that they turn around. And she kind of famously tells him, I've never you know, quit anything oh. I've set out to do. I'm not, I'm not about to start that now. <laughs> right? So uh, now the, the, the weather is getting worse. Uh, they, they finally ascend uh, to the peak. And it's like 3 p.m. in the afternoon. You know, conventional wisdom was that you get there by noon to make it down safely mm-hmm. before darkfall and, and the real storms come, but they, 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 were, they were already delayed. They begin their descent. Now the storm is raging. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a wicked bad storm. The, the, the guide suggests, you know, so he's helping her down the mountain. They're, 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 they're cold, they're tired, they're, it's, it's getting dark. Um, he suggests to Carrie that, that she stay there and he go down and find help and come back and get her. You know, she doesn't like this idea at first, but she, but she relents. And they find a little spot for her along the side of the mountain to, uh, to, to spend the night. The guide races down the mountain, finds his horse, which is like farther below where it should have been, gets to his father's house. His father knows the mountain well. They come back up. They, they, they find Carrie about 10 o'clock the next morning. And there she was on the side of the mountain, frozen to death. Oh, wow. The father's words were reportedly... I am afraid, dear lady, that you are past saving. Oh. Right. So Carrie, in her will, like her father, did something strange. She um, left all her money to the ASPCA. Which is what? The, the American Society for the Protection of Animals, which was probably a kind of a new thing then as well. And uh, her family uh, uh, fought this. They fought the will. They fought it in court. In fact, it was a, it was a big to-do uh, because Carrie was... Uh, you know, kind of well known as a socialite, maybe not, maybe not a Kardashian, but but you know, whatever the equivalent was at that time. <laughs> um, she, the, the the New York Times covered this trial. It was a big thing. Um, the family said she was insane to leave her money to, to animals. Oh. But Carrie uh, won that, and she was able to actually give her money to the ASPCA. Wow. Um, and she also, as I mentioned earlier, left left a large sum to the city of Waterbury to build a, uh, a bronze monument to her horse, Knight. Oh, wow. I guess the, the story is, in Waterbury, the legend, if you were to throw a coin into that fountain, you will spend the rest of your life in Waterbury. Oh. <laughs> so that's, that's the legend. Um, but Carrie Walton, it's, it's, uh, as I said, she, there's, a, there's a beautiful uh, portrait of her in the local museum, uh, very well known. One of my most famous uh, uh, residents resting at Riverside. Wow. Locally, at least. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's that's an amazing story. She sounds just... Uh, <laughs> she was a pistol, wasn't she? She was a pistol. That's right. You know, in, in fact, af- after she died on the mountain, 
there was a, 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 a big national debate about the safety of mountain climbing, you know. Mm-hmm. At that time, there, there was not really this whole national parks yet. The system hadn't been established yeah. yet. Mountaineering was a, was a new sport. And you can imagine most people said, you know, why is a woman doing this kind of thing? Of course, in those days. Right, so that, that was a big debate uh, as well about the safety of, of mountain climbing that, that she sparked. And wow. of course, tons of people go up Long's Peak today. Um, it's, it's much safer. Yeah. You know, we, we have better equipment and we, have, we know when to go and when not to go and that sort of thing. Um, and it's much safer today. Right, that is just really crazy. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. That's amazing. I don't even want to do it with all the new equipment. Well, she, yeah, and I don't know. She was probably in a dress. You know, she probably had right. a wool dress on and, and, and big boots and, and, you know, maybe wool stockings or something, right? Yeah, pretty incredible to think about. I, I have another one. I'll, I'll, I'll launch right into it if, 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 you're, sure. if you're ready. Keep going. Uh, and this is a, 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 an important story that, that, that ought to be told. I think I, I almost always uh, share it during my uh, tours or lectures, um, and that's the story of fortune. I am really interested in this story from the first time I saw the grave and it says the man fortune and I was like there's a story behind this I have to hear it so fortune was a slave he and his wife Dinah and their three children were property of a doctor preserved porter now this is in the 18th century so uh, the, the, Mm -hmm. the latter part so the 1780s and 90s Dr. Porter was a, uh, what they call the bone setter. You know, today we might mm-hmm. call him an orthopedic, but uh, you know, okay. I guess at that time, if you fell off your horse and broke your arm, you went to go see Dr. Porter. Besides his uh, medical practice, Dr. Porter had a small farm, and that's where uh, I imagine Fortune spent his time tending to the farm, and, and his wife, Dinah, probably uh, uh, did, the, did the domestic work in, at, the, at mm-hmm. the house there. And this is a bit of a mystery. Uh, Fortune died in 1798. The, the original story was that he drowned in the Naugatuck River. But uh, we're, we're not certain about that now. There, there's some question about how he may have died. Um, okay. In any event, uh, after Fortune died, Dr. Porter, I guess, took it upon himself to, uh, to completely dissect Fortune and use his body for research. Of course, Mm. this was not consent. Uh, He was property of Dr. Porter and probably felt it was his right to do that. After that, uh, Dr. Porter uh, blanched the bones so that they would be uh, clean and dry. And he used Fortune's skeleton to teach his students anatomy. Wow. That's all a little bit shocking, isn't it? It is. You know, uh, slavery was a thing uh, in New England at that right. time. Of course, it, it was not like southern slavery where, where there was these large plantations because really the soil, the landscape, you know, in, in New England was, wasn't suitable for that kind of farming. It was actually more suitable for industry. That's why, you know, the, the small swift creeks and stuff powered their early factories. So that, that was, mm-hmm. you know, what they did. But, but if you were a person of means, uh, like a doctor or uh, industrialist, um, you could you could have a slave or two around your property to uh, to help you with the with with the manual work and that sort of thing, right? Um, yeah. You know, I've seen a list of, of the uh, slave owners in Waterbury from that era. You know, it's not a really long list. You know, a dozen or so uh-huh. people may have had a slave or two, kind of thing. You know, 
Uh, uh-huh. but, but the fact is, uh, it existed here, and the idea of, of owning someone's property, um, you know, was just as wrong if it, if it was one or, 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 or 500, right? Um, right. And so, so, so Fortune and, and Dinah were here. Um, you know, at that time, uh, also, uh, uh, there was not really a medical school system. Um, so Dr. Porter used Fortune's bones uh, to teach his children anatomy who then followed him into the profession. And it kind of was Fortune's bones were handed down through the Porter family for several generations like this. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. In 1915, and I always forget this person's name, I'm not coming up with it, it was, it was a Dr. something Porter something, it was a woman. She was a, a direct descendant of, of Dr. Porter. Um, she was uh, the first woman to graduate from Johns Hopkins Medical School, as it turns oh, wow. out. In 1915, she gave the bones to the local museum, the Mattatuck Museum here in Waterbury. Because I think maybe at that point, um, um, <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> this is not how we should teach anatomy, right? Um, yeah. So the bones stayed in storage uh, with the museum for, for a few decades. And then at one point, I guess in the 1960s or 70s, the, the bones are put on display at the museum. Mm-hmm. I... Uh, I recall distinctly as a, as a, as a boy, about 10 years old, getting on a yellow school mm-hmm. bus uh, from school and a field trip to the museum yeah. and being there and, and seeing uh, Fortune's bones on display. Wow. And I always say this too, I, I don't know how, uh, and I'm sure I, w- I could not have known how as, as, as the kid that I was or, or whatever, just to, mm-hmm. you know. But it, it definitely felt wrong right. to see them. It, it definitely felt weird, at mm-hmm. least that I'm, I'm certain of, you know, as a 10-year-old. Someone had scratched the, the name Larry onto Fortune's skull Aww. at some point. So, so he was displayed as Larry. Okay. Um, and that was the little plaque there next to his name. Wow. So at some point, the museum must have realized or had the feelings that I had as a boy and realized this probably wasn't quite right, put the bones back in storage where they stayed until, I guess, the late 1990s. Uh, the museum, along with the African American History Project, began a, a complete and a, and, a, and a genuine and true uh, investigation into who Fortune mm-hmm. was, the, his history, his story. This is how I know all this. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, they did DNA testing on uh, that sort of thing um, to find out what they could about, about his, his, his genetic background and, and yeah. all that. Um, um, they, they, they then uh, gave him a proper display with, without his bones this time. You know, basically to discuss, you know, his life and slavery in New England at that time. And then finally, in 2013, it was decided that Fortune should have a proper burial. So uh, um, it was decided that he would have a a state funeral. So his body lie in state at the state capitol in Hartford, which is about 30 miles uh, east of Waterbury. So there was a big procession um, from the state capitol down to Waterbury. There was a funeral mass at St. John's Church which was the church where Fortune was baptized just before he died. And, and then there was a procession up to Riverside where he was, he was uh, laid to rest. Aww. Riverside is, is, is proud and happy that, that we were the place to give uh, uh, Fortune his, his rest after yeah. you know, so much indignity through life and death, right. really, right? Yeah, and, and you mentioned his, his, his monument stone. It's a simple stone. It's, it's actually quite beautiful and mm-hmm. it's, it's dusty. But uh, at, at the bottom, 
you know, it says, it says died 1798, buried 2013. <laughs> so that always raises questions for people like, what do you mean? Why, why was he, where was he for 175 years? Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we know that now. But below that, it says, it has his epitaph, which I also think is beautiful. It says, uh, child of God, free at last. Oh, that is beautiful. And, uh, and that's the story of the man fortune. Man fortune. So as part of that, we're, we're trying to get on the, the Connecticut Freedom Trail. We have Fortune. We also have, I guess, four uh, abolitionists in our in our uh, cemetery. At least two uh, that we are aware that had uh, stops on the Underground Railroad as slaves were freeing the South, uh, heading north. Oh, awesome. They, 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 there are some sites in Waterbury where, where they, they may have been uh, safely stored. Right. You know, and, and that's not to say, and, and there's a few industrialists uh, who were against uh, the, the ending of slavery, right. right? One of them was Green Kendrick. He has a beautiful monument. He was uh, a founder of Riverside Cemetery. He was a state legislature, state senator. Uh, he was actually born on a plantation uh, in North Carolina, but he uh, married a daughter of a Mark Leavenworth who built the first clock in Waterbury. Oh. And clocks were a big part of our industry. Uh, clocks and brass and brass products, buttons, buckles, those kinds of things. But, but the, the clock works were made of brass. So that was kind of, uh, they went hand in hand. Yeah. Anyhow, so he came north to, because he married into this family. Um, you know, wealthy families, marrying wealthy families kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, he was active. He was in the legislature. He was, I said, he, he, he was a founder of our cemetery. He, he gave the dedication speech in 1853 when it was dedicated. But, but he was he was against the ending of, of the institution of slavery right. um, he was you know you know so it's complicated for us right yeah. that those kinds of stories right. and uh, he has a big beautiful monument this beautiful brownstone it's there and he, he brought in fact his his ancestors you know as I mentioned Mark Leavenworth were at the old cemetery that those came, those monuments came over okay in some cases the the bodies came with them in some cases right <laughs> right if you could afford it or if there was anything right. left to move may have been not much to move after a hundred years or so you know we have some monuments just a stone dating back to like 1740s in our place but again they they were moved there from the old cemetery yeah so that's interesting too and you see those like what do you mean what's this doing here right there there, there was a movement to to save some of the significant uh and and oldest monuments uh people who were prominence back in the colonial times um to to have them to have their monuments preserved so so we have those today which is interesting to think about, I think. Exactly. History is what it is. It's history, and we learn from it, whether it's what we would like to continue to do or what was completely wrong, but it, it is history. And, then, and you know, and, and we try to tell all of it. There's was, there was, there was a good piece of history, uh, uh, Israel Holmes, and he has this massive um, um, obelisk. I will say this. I've, I've been to, to many cemeteries. In fact, just last week, I was up in Boston at Mount Auburn Cemetery, which is the nation's first rural cemetery. Oh, yeah. Have you been there? I have not. So I've actually not been to New England yet. Oh, well, you have to come. <laughs> Any of those states, it's on my list. <laughs> Well, because we have some of the oldest cemeteries in America, you know that, right? Right, yes. Uh, so, so so, people like to find those old uh, cemeteries with, with the old colonial uh, brownstones and things. Um, and of course, we also have a lot of the, uh, the rural cemetery yes. cemeteries. Mount Auburn was the first one. 
um, ever built uh, in America after, uh, I guess, Pierre Lachaise in, in, in Paris. Um, but uh, yeah, so Mount, Mount Auburn is beautiful. Um, and, but, but I would say uh, Riverside, uh, for some reason, as I said, we were the brass capital of the world, uh, uh, an industrial giant, really. And, and these guys, these industrialists, built massive monuments to themselves. I swear, I think we have some of the largest monuments I've ever seen anywhere, um, the collection of them. <laughs> these, these massive obelisks, uh, massive statues. Uh, it's a beautiful place. And, and again, I, uh, Lachelle, I hope you make it up here. And, you know, fall's the best time to be in New England. So, um, you know, if, if you're ever this way, I'd be happy to give you the, the Next the tour year, next side. fall. <laughs> All right. So I know that some of the stones that were moved over from the old cemetery date back to the 1700s. Tell us about some of those. I know that there is some great symbolism and artwork in those older stones that we just don't have on this side of the country. No, right. Yeah, a lot of those stones um, are, are, are made of brownstone um, or, okay. or sandstone. Um, there was there was a massive quarry uh, 20 miles east of here in, in Portland, Connecticut. So a lot of the stone uh, uh, monuments uh, from that era, from the, like you said, the 1700s, um, uh, the stone came from Portland um, and we could trace it there. Um, the, the beauty of the brownstone was, right. is that it was it's soft. Um, and, and so it allowed the, the carvers of that time to put really intricate uh, details on these stones but that yes. kind of cuts both ways because uh, now 200, you know, 100, 250 years later, um, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they, they do decay um, and they, they do kind of, you know, fracture. Um, and, and, and you could see where, the, where the, the stone, you know, kind of became sandstone and in layers, it sometimes yeah. is actually splitting apart. Um, so, so that's a problem. And, and those are hard to right. repair. You know, granite, um, marble uh, is a much harder stone. It can be repaired a lot easier. Um, we have a lot of sandstone in Arizona, mm -hmm. and so I see a lot of sandstone headstones and markers. And it's amazing. There's some that are perfectly preserved, have no problems whatsoever. And then you'll have, you know, I'll run across one where on both sides, it's just the layers are just splitting off and the whole face of it. You might see a part of a name and then the whole rest mm -hmm. of it is gone. So I can imagine. Yeah, and so, so we have quite a bit of that, the ones that came over from the old uh, cemetery. Um, and we have like six or seven right on the old congregational plot. So we have two plots. Uh, uh, actually, Fortune is in the mm -hmm. Episcopalian plot. Um, it's the old St. John's Church. Many, many of the founders of Riverside were Episcopalians. And uh, we also have a, a congregational plot, and, and buried there is, is Reverend Anderson. Uh, he wrote one of the early histories of Waterbury, he also was very much involved in making sure that these monuments were preserved over at Riverside. So uh, in, in their plot, there is uh, like six or seven of these. And one of them is interesting. One is a uh, Timothy Hopkins, okay. Esquire. His, speaking of, of, of you know ancestors, Timothy Hopkins, I think it was his great-grandfather, was born in London in 1606. Wow. So that I kind of blows my mind when, we're, when I'm talking about this stone and I'm talking about... 1606 like right, connected right. to it somehow you know it just seems so long ago but but his his grandfather came over to boston in the 1630s and then fled boston 
for religious freedom with, with Thomas Hooker, and they came and were actually the first people to settle the state of Connecticut. So, so Timothy Hopkins, is, he, he goes back to that kind of uh, early founding of our state. You know, and, and when Waterbury was, was and they were in Hartford, but they came down to Waterbury to build a mill. You know, and Timothy Hopkins uh, is, is a beautiful brownstone uh, a monument. In fact, we just cleaned it and reset it. We had a, 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 a monument uh, restoration workshop uh, in October. I saw photos of that on your social media. It's really cool. There's, there's a company called Atlas Preservation and uh, John Appel, uh, it's his company. He's been all over the country. Uh, repairing uh, monuments. He was he worked on the uh, King's Knight Tomb, which is supposedly the oldest tomb uh, monument in America, oh, wow. uh, in Virginia. He's an expert. He does these these workshops all over America. And turns out he's right here oh, in our wow. state. So we finally got him to come to Riverside last month and put on a demonstration on how to clean um, and repair, reset, uh, uh, fix fractured monuments. Um, it was amazing. We had about forty people. And, and so it was, you know, it, it was, it was a hands-on thing. So, you know, you could, you could adopt oh, a monument and clean it. We had a bunch of monuments cleaned by volunteers that oh, day. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's great. And he, he, he sells all the products too. So, you know, it's, 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 it's he, had, he gets a benefit too. And in fact, we went and, uh, bought some, some materials. So we have a lot of work to do in our cemetery. Um, got your D2, your little scrapers. Your little scrub brushes. The D2 he sells, that's, that's what he sells. That's right. He, all, all that, right. Um, so I, I bought a bunch of that. And I, I bought a bunch of the, 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 the monument setting compound and, and, and these things. So um, we're going to set some back. Yeah. Oh, I would have loved to have been there. I love that. Yeah. You, sh- you should, you know, you should follow him um, if, if this is the kind of thing you're interested in. And obviously you are. Um, uh, he, he may come your way someday or if you convince him to come out that way. I mean, he, he probably will. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, he's great. Um, so, so Timothy Hopkins's monument uh, back to 1740 um, was one we just repaired uh, and we, we mm-hmm. reset it, straightened it, uh, put them all in a row. So it looks beautiful. Oh. So it looks like it's, it was put there uh, last That's week. So it's awesome. Nice. Does it have a soul effigy? Yeah, it, it has. It has the uh, the old kind of like looks like we call him Squidward from from, from SpongeBob Square SquarePants. <laughs> is is his neighbor there? It looks like Squidward, but but it has. It has the, oh. the wings on it, and he also has a crown, which I think would indicate that he was a, yeah. someone of prominence. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And along the sides, there's thistle and roses, and um, at the very bottom, which was actually buried until we lifted it <laughs> last month, it says, I'm not going to get this exactly right, uh, but, but it's along the lines, uh, when, when this you see, then think on me, kind of thing. So, so he was already telling us that he wanted to be remembered. That's so the memento mori. Right. You know, the evolution of that is actually pretty interesting, too. The, the, the earliest uh, New England monuments, right. they actually would be just kind of skulls. The skulls, the skull and crossbones. Right. I mean, I think the religious belief was that, you know, only the elect were going to heaven. Right. And the rest of us were just going to rot in our graves. And that, that was all you got, you know. That's why you often, that's why they almost always start, and even Timothy Hopkins yeah. starts this way, here lies the body of, because that's what it right. is. That's where your body is, is rotting, right, um, in the grave. But I think after, you know, a, a, a century or so, um, they begin to soften their ideas, um, and, and they thought, maybe, well, maybe we can get to heaven. So, so they started putting wings on, on these skulls. They gained right? a little hope. They gained a little hope, right. And of course, of course, by the Victorian age, which, which most of our monuments are, of course, this theme of hope and everlasting life is throughout uh, the, the monuments. Um, 
in, in, in all kinds of symbology. You know, you won't see it with, I often point out, this is not like a Catholic mm -hmm. cemetery where you'll see crosses and Virgin Marys and that kind of thing. And so at first, my first encounter, like, well, they weren't very religious, they were mm -hmm. very secular people. And, and that's not true at all. It's just that their faith was, was, um, was kind of put on right. the monuments in, in much more subtle ways. For example, um, on Kerry Welton's uh, monument, there's engraving that I've never seen anywhere else. It shows a butterfly oh, uh, emerging yeah. from uh, a cocoon. And this would kind of symbolize our kind of life cycle. So we are mm -hmm. little caterpillars crawling along on, in, on the earth. And when we die, we're put into our sarcophagus. Cocoon, so to speak. <laughs> our cocoon, so to speak, right, and then and then we emerge, beautiful butterflies, uh, for uh, in, in everlasting life. Yeah, that is beautiful. This is portrayed there, and it's it's really cool. I love a lot of the symbolism of the older stones of those times. It's so different than now. You know, you have to know a little bit about it, and it's really kind of exciting and interesting as you walk through a cemetery and you see a symbol that you know what it is. And so I really enjoy looking at those. I, I, I do too. It's, it's, it's kind of one of my more recent uh, rabbit holes <laughs> to, to go oh. down that, that, that path. You know, the Victorians, yeah. they, they put a lot of meaning into, into flowers, uh, for example, mm -hmm. and plants. So you'll see a lot of lilies, uh, the calla lily, uh, yeah. representing beauty and marriage often. Um, the Easter lily, uh, of course, everlasting life. Uh, the lily of the of the valley, which technically is not even a, a lily, but 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 we call it a lily. Um, and it <laughs> represent uh, uh, purity and innocence. Sometimes you would see the lily of the valley on a child's uh, monument. Other things as well. For example, the sheaf of wheat. When you see like the, there would be wheat on these Victorian monuments, um, that would symbolize uh, a long, fruitful life. Yeah. So if you if you live past seventy and, and you did well, you'd sometimes put. Um, uh, a sheaf of wheat on your monument. Uh -huh. Or another one, um, you see this too, you see the laurel wreath. The, the, the laurel wreath goes back to, to ancient times, but the Greeks used it to the winner of the games. If you, if you want a sporting event, you got the victory wreath. And then the Romans adopted it. If you came back from battle and you were victorious, you, you, you got the victory wreath, right? Mm -hmm. And it also uh, gave to the, the soldier who got the wreath some sort of absolution uh, for all the murders he just committed, right? The, which mm -hmm. I always thought was interesting. Right. But uh, but but uh, the Victorians adopted the wreath as well, and uh, and it would symbolize victory over death, right? That's so you see that that's quite that's quite a common symbol on these monuments. One of my favorites uh, symbol. It, it's actually not religious. It, it is secular. Um, you'll see ivy mm -hmm. on, on a lot of monuments um, uh, throughout the cemeteries of this period. Um, ivy, of course, uh, uh, grows up the sides of, of, of buildings and trees and things. It has that support, um, and so so the ivy would would, would uh, symbolize friendship. I love that. So so this person was a, was a friend, you know, and, and I I always like to find find ivy on monuments. Yeah, makes me think that I, I would have liked this person. <laughs> right. Oh, I found a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I love that. It's. It's always fun to talk to a fellow taphophile. Well, thank you. I, 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 I love talking about, you know, uh, I, I, you've probably been to many, many more cemeteries than I have. Um, <laughs> I, I, I spend most of my time at Riverside. At Riverside. Um, you know, um, I, I, I've, gone, I've gone very deep down that one because I've been going there for 30 years. Yeah. Um, um, and, and I'm amazed that no matter how many times I've been there and walked through there, 
I always find something new. It always un, un, mm-hmm. uh, reveals a, a new uh, landscape view I've never seen, a, a new piece of history, a new, a new monument detail. Um, it's, it's amazing. I, I, I've yet to grow tire, tired of it. It's, 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 it's an amazing place. Oh, I can't wait to visit. You well, know, I, I, I have to say, when I was at Mount Auburn last week, I was like a kid in a candy store. Like, oh my gosh. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm ridiculous. <laughs> I know. It's, yeah. I, I know a lot of people think that um, touring cemeteries is just really a weird kind of a hobby. But if you love the outdoors, if you love history, if you love art, architecture, there's just so much. And then just... It's that holy place where people are laid to rest. And so it's kind of like going to me like an outdoor church or sanctuary, that place for the people that are laid to rest there. And then trying to glean a little bit of information about them, like you said, with the ivy, like, oh, this person was a good friend or this person was an innocent or look, here's a little lamb on this one this must have been a child and then you look at the dates and you go yep mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah i just i know i'm ridiculous when i get to go to a new cemetery i was just gonna say it, it and i started you know uh as a as a young uh person in my early 20s I, I discovered riverside and was attracted immediately to it to it for, for all these things we're talking mm-hmm. about right that the the monuments and, and the names and the, and the, and the nature it, it really is like um a little refuge, right, from, from yeah. the city, and that was its yeah. intention. And so I was downtown in, um, in at the library, in fact, at the very site of where the original burial oh. ground was, they put a library <laughs> there. But I was going through the, the, in the genealogy room, and I found the first book of Riverside Cemetery, and I was thumbing through the pages, and I came across the line, the first resident custodian of, of Riverside Cemetery was Mr. M. Bagnall. That's my name. Yes. I had not heard that story before. I was blown away. I was like, "What is this?" You know <sighs> what I mean? Like, I was, I was, I was floored. I was like, it was kind of spooky, right? What, yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. So I asked my uh, my grandmother. She said, "Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, talk to your great aunt Margaret. This is my grandfather's sister, and it was my great aunt Margaret who told me the story of Michael and Catherine, how they came to America, and how he had that job for many years." Oh, wow. So, so it was revealed to me that way, and, and I, I've been hooked ever since. Right? Oh, I love it. Well, let's see. I think we've got time for one more story or so. I thought that the roof muskrat Bronson sounded exciting or fun. You know, again, this is an example of, of uh, the cemetery revealing new stories to me all the time because I just found her a couple months ago. She only has a, a very small, flat, flush marker. So you wouldn't know mm-hmm. it. You'd walk right over it and ne- never know it was there. But uh, I, I got a call from, from someone who, who has been on our tours and said, did you know who's Muskrat Bronson's in your cemetery? I was like, I had no idea. So this is the story. So, so Ruth Muskrat Bronson... I was born a Cherokee Indian um, in Oklahoma. Her family had been forced uh, to Oklahoma from North Carolina um, along the Trail of Tears. She had a rough childhood, but she was she was very bright. She goes to the University of Oklahoma, but is forced to drop out after a couple months because of uh, uh, she could not afford it. She ends up working at the I think the YWCA. I want to say, but anyway, she, she she she's working there and she has an opportunity to go to Asia. Uh, on, on this kind of exchange program um, and she's considered the first person of Native American heritage to represent the United States in China. 
Interesting. Or overseas even maybe a bit. But yeah, so so anyway, as a young woman, right, she's probably only, you know, 18 or so at this time. She ends up back in school at, I think, the University of Kansas uh, this time, uh, where she does very well. And she is part of the, the, the Council of 100, if I'm getting that right. She was invited to the White House in 1923 to address the president, where she made a very uh, stirring speech. Wow. Concerning Native American uh, uh, rights. So she was advocating for education for, for Native American children. She was advocating for citizenship, because of course in 1923, Native Americans were not considered citizens of the US. Okay, yeah. Voting rights, basic rights like clean water, access to food, mm -hmm. these kinds of things. She, she, she made a very powerful speech, and you can find it online. It's, it, it's worth reading. It's, it's very impressive from a young woman. President Coolidge was so impressed that he invited her back to lunch with he and his wife, uh, which she accepted. Um, she, she ends up then on a full scholarship to uh, a Holy Cross College, that's, which is up here in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, I think that, and I think that's where she met her husband, a John Bronson of Waterbury. Oh. Um, anyhow, a, a, after school, she, she's an author, she's a poet, she writes beautiful poetry, she writes books about uh, the, the Native American experience. Um, she goes to work for a time at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, this is a, a new agency in Washington. Mm -hmm where she's, uh, I guess she's responsible for giving out scholarships to uh, Native American children. And, uh, but she tires of Washington life. She moves to Arizona. Yay, Arizona. Where she spends the rest of her life uh, caring for and advocating for Native American children. Um, I think she died in Tucson in 1982. You could probably find some information about yeah. her there. There's Bronson's all over Riverside. You can't, you can't, you'll trip over Bronson. Okay, uh-huh. Stone. Um, so, so the Bronson family, you know, at one point I saw she, someone described her, she married a Connecticut Yankee, so that's what she did. <laughs> so they had a plot here, so, so he, he died, I guess, in the, in the 60s or 70s, you know, ahead of her. Um, so he went here, and then when she died, she was also buried next okay. to him. I will point out that, uh, that they only had one adopted child, um, a Native American girl. I'm not sure what happened to her, but... Um, so her, her, her birth date was on this little marker and I, you know, and, but, but not her death date. Oh. So I just hired a local monument company to, 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 to engrave the, her death date on there. So that, that we're going to finish that. Oh, I love that, That's Martin. That's do. awesome. One of the most important Native American civil rights activists of the 20th century. And uh, here she is in, in Riverside Cemetery. Like I said, but th those kinds of things keep revealing themselves to me. Uh, that's really what the podcast is all about is people and their stories i mean i love the cemeteries but also equal to me is the stories of the people that are there there's just so many great stories you know people are just they're important and their stories are important i'll leave you with one more um because this 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 is about I think all the things Perfect. we've said. Um, there, there's a there was a small monument, and it was it was completely filthy black, um, and there was a little book on it. So my assumption is when you see a book on a monument of that era, it's it's, right. it's the Bible, right? And it's it, this is a an expression of yeah. faith. So I, I, I got my D two, right? <laughs> and I, and I and I cleaned this little white marble um, monument, and I noticed there was the hand on the Bible wasn't pointing to the Bible; it was holding a a, a pen. Oh. Like, huh, that's interesting. So who was this person? Was this person a writer or what's going on here? So this person is, is William P. Howard. William 
came to Waterbury uh, at about 20 years old. His parents were in Canada. He came around his own and got a job as a bookkeeper in the Waterbury Brass Company. And apparently, uh, William was doing well, had uh, a lot of good friends. He had a fiance, was engaged to be married, all these things. And it turns out that, that one Monday morning, they, they came to the office and they found Mr. Howard, who had shot himself in the head uh, with a pistol. And so now I'm really curious. I find the newspaper article basically describing all of this um, to me. But the newspaper describes that, uh, you know, they say he was somewhat imbued with German materialism. So what is this? This is a, a mid 19th century philosophy that you believe that all that we can know as humans is only that which we can see and touch. Huh. Material. Oh, okay. Right. So, I mean, if we apply that to today's terminology was was maybe an early atheist you know uh-huh probably not like like most of the people uh you know in in, in new england in in 1860 right um yeah anyhow the the newspaper article says you know we're not going to judge him for that but then they completely <laughs> judge him right that's what they say <laughs> but maybe if he hadn't maybe if he had god this wouldn't have happened you know <laughs> is what they said so we're not going to judge him for that but you know, you know. <laughs> it's probably what killed him. So he had a funeral. It was Israel Coe, the, the president of Waterbury Brass Company, um, um, had the funeral from his home. Um, his friends and family and probably some co-workers uh, came up to Riverside where he was interred. He has a, he has a big plot. Uh, Mr. Coe bought it for him, and, and Mr. Coe bought the monument as well. So it was Mr. Coe who decided, let's put on his stone that he was a bookkeeper. This is, this is what he was. Right. He, he, he um, so, so, you know, that, that, uh, that kind of story is something that yeah. Mr. Howard could very easily be forgotten. So interesting. So I'm, I'm actually feel good about that one that, that I, I cleaned his, I cleaned his monument. I tell his story. <laughs> we don't know what happened, you know, whether it was, maybe he was cooking the books, right. You know, maybe his fiance dumped him or, or maybe it was just mental illness that at that time would not have been diagnosed right, right? Um, he wasn't maybe he didn't get the help he needed. yeah so 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 again so even in in, in, in that sort of situation um, these are important stories for us to think about how they apply to, to our lives and, and again yes his, his his stone is nice and clean now it's 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 it's, it's the white marble uh, like it was <laughs> in 1862 um, and it was and it was blacked when you got to it. Completely black. You know, there was just 100 years of soot, mold, mildew, algae, all these things, you know. It, I tell you, that was one of the things yeah. I went to, when I went to Mount Auburn, there was not a single broken stone, not a single leaning stone. All the stones were, were, were immaculate. Wow. And I'm like, man, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? That's a lot of D2. <laughs> a lot of D2. That's right. <laughs> I, I love actually watching the videos of people that they make of cleaning headstones. <laughs> Do you ever watch those? Sure, Lady Tafos. I, 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 I follow her. Um, and, yeah, and... the good cemeterian. <laughs> That's right. Um, and I did a time lapse of myself and my son cleaning uh, William Howard's monument. I should share that with you, and you could, you could, you could post that too. Oh, nice. Do. All right. Yes, I would love it. I, I just think that that's a really neat thing and that's kind of on my bucket list of I need to get the stuff and while I'm out and, you know, see some that need a little help, 
Because there are just a lot of times you're like, I cannot even read what this says anymore. Right. And I want to know who this is. And I just think it's a great way of honoring those that came before making their markers readable again. So thank you for doing that. Thanks for your work that you do. Yeah, it's, it's, I feel like it's important work. I'm, I'm happy to do it for, for a lot of reasons. It's very satisfying to see this hundred years of grime come off of a stone. It, it, it really is satisfying. Mm-hmm. And, and you feel more connected right. to, to the person who's, who's uh, at rest there, whose monument this is. And, and oftentimes, like you said, it, 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 it will spur me or, or anyone to, to find out who is this person. And so it makes that connection and uh, it helps people coming after me. Now they could read the stone, right? The way it was intended. Yes. Well, of course, I'm sold. I want to come see the cemetery. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing your stories and um, what you do there at Riverside Cemetery. Well, thank you, Michelle. I I, I do hope you can make it up this way. And and if you do, uh, please let me know. And I'd be happy to show you around and and tell you other stories (laughs) of of the people resting there and about the monuments. And and you can see for yourself uh, the the, the beauty of of Riverside. you know, I say this sometimes, I never thought I'd be the cemetery guy, but here I am. I, I've thrown myself, <laughs> I, I've, I've thrown myself into it. Um, um, I'm, we're getting a lot. You're owning yeah, it. Yeah, and I'm owning it. We've, we've, we've done a lot of work. <laughs> Same. Yeah, right. Um, you know, right now there's people, there's people at our place right now doing a tree inventory. So we're actually literally, we're counting every tree. I saw that. We're identifying its species, its condition, and, and this is to care for our, our, our trees. We are, not only are we a cemetery, we're, we're an arboretum, an urban forest, and that's important too, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're gonna maintain our trees and for generations yeah. to come. Um, we have a planting plan, that sort of thing. That's, that's, that's one of our biggest assets as well. Our monuments, our trees. Yeah, it's, 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 it's great work and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm happy to do it. Well, every cemetery needs a friend group like Riverside has. You guys are really with it there. Hopefully it'll give some of the rest of us a shot in the arm to um, help out with our local cemeteries and make them the beautiful show place that yours is. You know, if, if people would just go and spend some time, uh, it, it's hard not to make that connection to find the, the history and the art and the beauty mm-hmm. and, uh, and, the, and the stories and, uh, and, and get connected and, and they'll be hooked too, I think. <laughs> right, get connected to your community, the people that made your community what it is. Well, thank you, Martin. So appreciate your time today. And I can't wait to share all of your beautiful photography. There's so many amazing ones that you sent me, so that'll be really exciting. I'm really glad that you guys reached out to me. I wish more cemeteries would, you know? (laughs) Well, I I enjoyed it. (laughs) Thank you again for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. You never know what stories you will dig up in a cemetery. As I always say, our stories are important. Each life lived was important. We all play a part in this world, and learning the stories of those who have gone before help us. Help us have so many things, so many feelings, pride, gratitude, courage, empathy, and inspiration. 
and yes, sometimes even disgust, sadness, or anger at what was done before and the things that were thought acceptable in times past. And that's okay. It's good, in fact. We shouldn't erase the stories of the past. They should be told, good ones and bad, with the intent to make sure that we learn from past mistakes and go forward with knowledge and a determination to make the world a better place for all of us. And that's all we can do. Thank you for being with us. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. photos, and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. Imagining herself as the extrovert, but she is not